Assalamu alaikum everybody. Welcome to another Saturday, my favorite day of the week now. Now I have two favorite days of the week, Tuesday and Saturday. Um, but Saturday is, of course, the really amazing long session where we can really dig in. Um, I um, wanted to just do a little bit of housekeeping first. I know people have written me um, that they're excited about our English um, Quran Tafsir project and wondering about the publication of it. Um, this is obviously our really big, exciting project, and um, it depends on several things. Of course, it depends on donor funding, um, and it depends on us also working our way through the, the sewers. So we've done now 15 chapters, and so we definitely want to at least get to a critical mass before we can start um, publishing. But there's a lot of work, as I mentioned before, um, that goes into preparing a text for proper publication. So, um, you know, we're going to be working as quickly and diligently as we can, but we also need to um, have uh, donor support um, for the, the, you know, sheer costs of doing the project, everything from editing to uh, transcription to um, publication and everything else that is involved in publishing a text. Um, and one of the ideas that we had that um, we thought might be very exciting is uh, the notion of adopting a surah. So we're gonna start putting together um, some plans that if you want to sponsor a particular surah in this publication, um, and of course the very exciting thing is that anyone who benefits from the publication of that particular surah, from, you know, from the knowledge, from the learning, that's obviously hasanet that will be to your credit from now till the final day. And that's an incredible um, opportunity, I think. Um, so we'll, you know, keep an eye out for that. We'll be putting that program together. I think that's very, very cool. We should publish the name of the person who sponsors. And if the person wants, we can have publish the name of the person who is sponsoring that surah. So, of course, you can do it anonymously if you like, but if you want to um, have your name to it, too, that would, of course, be something very wonderful. Um, so, you know, these, um, I think that everyone here has found that each of these chapters has been very personally touching. Um, I think in particular, Tekweer this past week was very powerful. I got a lot of feedback from people that this was um, you know, just a incredible chapter, the way it was presented um, and how it touched people um, very deeply. And it reminded me, certainly, I mean, these all these sewers do, but it, this one in particular reminded me of my journey very early on when I was very much in a state that, you know, I didn't like myself very much. I didn't like, there were a lot of parts about my um, personality and my, just, you know, my orientation that I really wanted to change. I had made a commitment, I wanted this path. And I remember even talking to the professor and feeling like, oh my God, there's so many things about me that I don't like, that I need to confront, that, you know, so much that I have to do. I wish there was just a pill that I could take and it could all be done. <laughs> And I remember he said to me, you know, there, there's no magic pill, um, unfortunately. Um, there is no substitute for hard work, and it's definitely no fun. I mean, you know, when we are looking at these suras, what we're really fundamentally talking about is change, right? And change is difficult, and change is um, something that can't be willed or wished, but has to be learned. And even like, you know, when you think about praying five times a day, you know, I, I really feel like, um, 
you know, many of us have a tendency to be couch potatoes. And if it weren't for having to get up five times a day to pray, you know, maybe we would all just be couch potatoes the rest of our lives. And I remember that incremental process of feeling like, you know, that was very helpful to just even get up off the couch and get moving. And, you know, as life progressed, you know, as you get married, as you have children, every time you're about to sit down and you want to relax, something comes up and you have to get up and move. You know, and you start learning that every time you actually fight those forces of sort of inertia within you, um, every little battle that you win is actually a step towards um, mastery over yourself and fighting that um, desire just not to change and not to and to remain in your comfort zone. Um, and so it's you know it's a it's a lifetime process. But like Takwir reminded us too, you know, when God says, "Why um, are you keeping yourself?" in this prison effectively you know i mean we imprison ourselves and i i remember like so many of those times when you know i thought about all the things i wanted to change and all the things about myself that i felt uncomfortable with i was the one that was avoiding the change because i was uncomfortable but i was creating a prison for myself there were things that i wouldn't look at talk about bring up people i even wouldn't want to see because it would remind me of something about myself that i didn't like and pretty soon you realize that it's a very oppressive prison of your own making. And as soon as you actually have the courage to step up and confront the things about yourself that you don't like, that you know are hanging over you, you feel them. Um, once you start confronting those things and being brave and saying, you know, I don't like this about me, I know this about me, and actually now I'm committed to fixing it. Um, and you take those things one step at a time you start releasing yourself from this self-imposed prison. And those incremental steps towards freedom, liberation, um, you know, that's what lightens your, your load. I mean, it makes you viscerally feel more free, um, more able to be, you know, the true person that God intended for you to be. And it's not that you are working towards being obviously a perfect person because, you know, you, you just want to be someone who is honest and truthful with yourself, able to confront those things about yourself that you don't like and able to have mastery over those things and try to change them. And um, when you are the first person that can say, you know, I have a tendency towards arrogance, I have a tendency towards jealousy, I have a tendency towards, you know, um, miserliness, then you own it and you can address it you can recognize it in yourself, you can fix it, and no one else holds that over you. Like, you don't have the fear that someone's gonna call you on your weakness because you're the first one that can own up to it. And that's a very liberating feeling. So, you know, these, um, I know that these surahs sometimes make you feel overwhelmed with all the things that maybe you wish you weren't like or that you wish you could change. But I think that when you start to see that you can take in incremental steps towards releasing yourself from your own prison, um, when you get to the end of that, your you know, freedom is, is peace and tranquility and um, worth the journey. So just a couple of thoughts. Um, thank you so much for joining and looking forward to another amazing session. And may Allah bless all of us. Inshallah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. 
وسبحان الله العلي العظيم لا إله إلا هو وحده لا شريك له له الملك وله الحمد وهو على كل شيء قدير اللهم لا مانع لما أعطيت ولا معطي لما منعت ولا ينفع ولا ينفع ذا الجد منك الجد يا الله يا علي عظيم وصلي وسلم وبارك على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه وطبوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحفظ عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب سورة فاطر أو سورة إن شاء الله تلهي Before I delve into سورة فاطر الله أعلم you know we we offer our jihad and the results are, are up to Allah. It is not wise and not advisable to think of the results, but only to think of the action and the jihad that we present. Um, perhaps this commentary in the Quran Perhaps is the most important contribution that I make in my lifetime. Um, I believe that the salvation of this Ummah is in the Quran. And I firmly believe to the extent that this Ummah has abandoned the Quran, it has abandoned itself, and in turn Allah has abandoned it. There is no path to tomorrow for us as Muslims if it's not anchored in the Quran. And so only Allah knows the cost that one bears to do a project like this. But any of you that invests in this project, I believe, inshallah, at least the intention is that you invest in the future of Islam. And the, you invest in the very definition of taking people from darkness to light, from al-zulumati ila nur Anything that helps make the Quran a book of personal revelation in our life is critical for our Ummah. And I, uh, I, you know, I do dream that Allah wills and I can see before I leave this world uh, 
an actual published tafsir. Of course, if I'm around to supervise the, the publishing of a tafsir like this, it, it's a quality control because I can review things myself and make sure that there are no mistakes, no errors, no misunderstandings. Um, but I want to, to underscore that we, when we invest in the Quran, we are investing in our ummah and we are investing in our future and we are investing in Allah's barakah and Allah's blessing. And without that investment, there is no future and there is no ummah and there is no barakah, there is no Allah's blessing. Um, all that I can do is to appeal to people out there to help. I do what I can, but the 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 path of a of a scholar is very costly and uh, all consuming. And um, a scholar standing alone. Uh, is like a voice in the wilderness. So the more of you help you don't know you might be earning a, a fountain of hasanat for ages to come. Uh, for every Muslim and alhamdulillah I've had so many that have said that they would have written me or written grace or written the Usuli Institute and said that if it hadn't been for um, our efforts that they would have not remained Muslim or that they would have lost their faith and so on and alhamdulillah when you get messages like this it's very reassuring that um, you are investing in a sadaqah jariyah, in something that could be the path for nearness to Allah long after you're gone. Um, so, and remember, and we'll talk about this, our ummah crumbled when it lost sight of the value of knowledge. You can't put a price on knowledge. It, it is the most valuable thing, and yet Muslims are, feel entitled to it. Muslims feel that, uh, you know, in, in our tradition, there is a common saying, sometimes it was attributed to different companions, sometimes to different tabi'een, that whoever teach me, teaches me a letter, I become is slave to them when Arlamani Harfan Abdan. But it, it reflects the, the at least in our tradition how people understood the value of knowledge. Um, and as we will talk about in Surah Fatir, a nation is only as good as the quality of its scholars. When the scholars are lost, as the Prophet taught, the nation is lost. Most people don't realize what it takes to create a single scholar. 
and the extent of a, what, how much of a loss it is when you, when you lose a single scholar, a conscientious smaller moral scholar, not a scholar that exists to legitimate and appease power holders and power abusers. These are not scholars, these are hypocrites. They don't count. Uh, a, a true scholar lives divorced from power all their life, often in opposition and power and often persecuted by power. That's, that's sort of the earmark of a true scholar. So I underscore that what we are doing with the Quran is extremely valuable. It is literally priceless. And just because we receive it easily on the net for free doesn't change the fact that you are dealing with something priceless. And it is worth every investment. Investment of time, investment of money, investment of energy, investment of thought, every type of investment. And to the extent we invest, we are blessed. And to the extent we do not invest, we are cursed. It doesn't matter how much prayer you do, how much fasting you do, how much hajj you do. If you don't understand the value of ilm and arfan, the value of knowledge, all of that is for naught. And if you don't understand the value of scholars, all of that is for naught. As the Prophet ﷺ, and we'll talk about this in Surah Fatr, the value of a single scholar is worth much more than a thousand abid, a thousand worshippers. Um, our Ummah has lost everything when it thought that um, that every person can self-appoint themselves as a scholar by by the 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 drive of their whim. So invest in this. Invest in this. May that be your Shafi'a on the hereafter. May that be what testifies on your behalf in the hereafter. And may Allah accept and may Allah make you blessed. And may Allah extend the blessings to your progeny, to your children and the children of, the, of your children. If you are wise, you want to protect yourself, your family, and your children, and the children of your children from demonic powers and demonic influences. And you can only do that, not by ibadah, but by investment, by jihad. And the jihad of knowledge is the highest jihad. There is no greater jihad. Ya Rabb, I pray that this reaches people and that people understand. So, 
Surat Fatir is again from the Meccan revelation. It is revealed the reliable or the most reliable reports is that it is revealed after Surat Al-Furqan, which we covered. It is revealed directly after Surat Al-Furqan. And if you remember, Surat Al-Furqan was revealed after Surat Yaseen. If you study the Quran enough, you see a remarkable buildup that actually starts I would say from Al-A'raf, which we haven't covered, but Surat Al-A'raf, then Surat Al-Jinn, then Surat Yaseen, then Surat Al-Furqan, then Surat Fatir. And Fatir marks a point of, if you will, demarcation, because after Fatir comes Surat Maryam. And Surat Maryam, which we haven't covered, is the point where the Quran turns the gaze to a more extensive discussion about um, biblical, if you will, figures. And elaborates upon the stories of past prophets tying in the message of Muhammad to the past prophets more explicitly and clearly. So what is the point of demarcation with Surat Fatir? Inshallah, as we'll see, in many ways, in many ways, Surat Fatir spells out, it's like um, the constitutional foundation of Islamic theology. The constitutional foundation of Islamic theology. It is remarkable in several respects that if you take the surah and you study it sufficiently, you find that it goes from one principle to another. All the principles that it covers are critical for the iman of a Muslim. Without these principles, the iman of a Muslim is seriously lacking, seriously deficient, seriously flawed. It starts out with Allah as the father, and we'll talk about what father means in a second, inshallah but as the originator and the maker. 
the point of demarcation between those who follow the path and those who reject the path is whether they understand Allah as the center of everything. It then covers the arch enemy of humanity represented in the point of the demonic. Shaitan is an enemy, but not just Shaitan is an enemy, but everything that is demonic is an enemy. And all that is demonic is dark. The critical distinction between those who believe and those who do not believe as anchored in the principle of justice. So, belief, as we will see, is about justice, while those who do not believe are fundamentally unjust, and belief is fundamentally about justice, as we will see, inshallah. Then, either you recognize that true glory, true honor, true power is with God, or you don't. This is something that you cannot afford to be confused about, as Surat Fatir tells us. And finally, Surah Fatah talks about the results of disbelief. It is not an exaggeration to say that Surah Fatah is an invitation or an exploration into the types of things or the types of issues that you must have a decisive stand towards, sort of the the black and white of existence, where murkiness or uh, indecisiveness is not acceptable. And also, as we will see, an invitation to reflect upon those things that do have the quality of gradations. They're not always either black or white, but they're gradations of either goodness or badness.
So it's not an exaggeration to say that Surat Fatir takes you into an entire journey into the very constitutional, foundational principles of faith itself. Okay. Alhamdulillah, Fatir al-Samawati wal-Ard, ja'i lil-malaikati rusula, uli ajnihatin mathla wa thulath wa ruba'a, يزيد في الخلق ما يشاء إن الله على كل شيء قدير. The opening of Father takes us right away to the world of the unseen. Father, the 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 word Father. Um, can mean that who splits something or separates something. Ibn Abbas, one of the early earliest Islamic authorities, said that he did, wasn't sure what fought, the word fatr meant until he saw two Bedouins fighting over a well. Uh, over a well. And one of them said, "Fatartuha," which means I dug it, or I this this I discovered this well. And the other person say, "No, it's Bal Ana Fatartuha." But it means the originator in the Quranic context. It means the originator of a thing. The, the decisive maker of a thing. So, Fatr al-Samawati wal not just the creator, but it, it has a, 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 a fascinating implication of a process of creation in which things are extracted from other things. Like, you, your 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 you, you, you create, if you create, a, 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 let's say, a blob of clay, and then from that blob of clay you form a vase or a statue, that's fatr al-shay. That's fatartul al-timsal. You extracted it from. So fatr al-samawati wal-ard. It's literally as if Allah created something and then extracted the heavens and the earth from that thing um, it, through a process of splitting or combustion or but immediately it takes us to the world of light because it tells us that the angels um, could have an unnamed number of wings In part, we are told that there is a hadith, it's not a very reliable hadith, but it's often cited, that the Prophet saw the angel Gabriel and that Gabriel had X number of wings. Um, I'm, I'm hesitant about, about it because of the, of the doubt about the, the authenticity of the hadith. So the reports that say that Surat Fatir is telling the kuffar 
or the opponents of the Prophet why are you surprised? Um, Allah can create the angels with any number of wings as Allah wishes. But as so many commentators have noted, when it comes, the, the, the key thing in, in Allah's reference to angels and their wings is not to imagine the wings or the number of the wings, but to point our attention to a realm of creation that is not seen and not experienced, but is very real. Because we don't know what wings mean when it comes to angels. They're not necessarily like the wings of birds or the wings that we are accustomed to. And, you know, the idea of wing, what does that mean when it comes to, to angels? And what does the number mean? when it comes to angels. So when we read a report that says that Gabriel had 600 wings, what does that mean? But it makes sense in the context of the rest of the surah that fundamentally points our attention to humility before the world of the unseen. If you are going to be a believer, you're going to have to accept that there is an entire realm of existence not accessible to you, not reachable by you, but nevertheless very much real. So immediately Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comments on this by telling us that the point is not the number of, of wings, but that Allah can yazidu fil khalq ma yasha, that Allah, in fact, is constantly in a state of creation, and that do not believe that creation is simply something that you can empirically account for. Allah is constantly creating what you do not know. This is a God, there is an, an interest, I mean, there is a, a historical point to, the, to this, is that there used to be, um, uh, most of the reports say that it was taken from the Israelite tradition, the idea that God created what God created, and then appointed human beings as viceroys, as agents, well, especially the Israelites as agents, and God basically knows no longer involved with creation, no longer adding anything to creation, nor subtracting anything from creation, but pretty much like an absentee lord, landlord. Uh, God put the Israelites in charge, especially the Israelites, and God moved on, uh, literally lost interest. And the, the Quran, not just in Surah Fatir, but in several places, insists on challenging this idea, the idea of God as, as having been involved with creation at one point and was no longer involved is 
something completely rejected by the Quran. But in fact, the Allah is constantly engaged. Allah is constantly creating, creating what you know and what you don't know, what you discover and what you don't discover. Allah is ever present, not just in a salvational sense, but in the particulars of life itself and in the particulars of creation itself. There is, an, there is a theological debate that you don't hear anymore as to, um, which is, I mean, um, if we notice new creations by Allah that we were not, that did not exist previously, is Allah talking to us or is this simply the, a, a, a non-issue? Where that matters, I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, they used to have this abstract debate. So if, you know, and the abstract debate would usually say something like, if we suddenly find camels that have three humps, uh, or if we suddenly find people born with an extra finger, or if we suddenly find people born with an extra arm, is Allah talking to us? And most Muslim theologians said yes. Now, that abstract debate, interestingly, if you look at um, those interested in environmental contamination and the birth of animal deformities and human deformities, it's very interesting because that theology becomes then pertinent. That, in fact, Allah is talking to us through these deformities. Um, while if you don't have that sensitivity, you would, say, you would tend to not see it as Allah in actual in discourse with you. Um, another unrealized potential in, in our tradition. Um, these abstract debates, I, I don't think the people who, who used to argue about them could have imagined uh, what pollution has done to the environment and what Allah might be t telling us if we study the results of pollution in creation. Uh, because it's either you think that this happens without, in, you know, uh, uh, this happens uh, without Allah's involvement, or you are aware that pollution, in fact, happens with Allah's involvement, and that Allah is constantly sending messages to human beings through creation. There's also an interesting discussion that has always fascinated me. Muslim theologians would talk about what if we notice 
that when we study creation, that the percentage of intelligence is increasing or decreasing. And again, they used to have these discussions in, in more and abstract. So is, if we find that people are becoming smarter, is that, is that a sign of Allah's blessing? Is, that Allah, is Allah talking to us through, through that dynamic? Um, again, when you think of the effects of pollution on human beings and the effects on uh, pollution on the intelligence levels of young children, um, in underdeveloped countries, um, the, the impact uh, on children is undeniable uh, on their whole nervous system. And this theological debate becomes fascinating. Because according to the theologians, in fact, um, you, you are obligated to study this and to reflect on what Allah is telling you by studying the empirical results. And uh, in fact, it is not just you know, something that happens without God's involvement. Okay. ما يفتح ما يفتح الله للناس من رحمة فلا ممسك لها وما يمسك فلا مرسل له من بعده وهو العزيز الحكيم يا أيها الناس اذكروا نعمة الله عليكم هل من خالق غير الله يرزقكم من السماء والأرض لا إله إلا هو فأنا تؤفكون This is now two and three Whosoever, whatsoever mercy God opens unto mankind, none shall withhold, and whatsoever God withholds, none shall release thereafter. And God is the mighty and wise. O humankind, remember God's blessing upon you. Is there a creator other than God who provides for you from heaven and earth? There is no God but God. How then are you perverted? So, Alhamd, when we say the, the Alhamdulillah, which is the basic expression of gratitude, Muslim theologians would often divide alhamd and I'll use the Arabic because it, it, all translations are uncomfortable like gratitude thankfulness um, that fundamental expression of alhamdulillah Muslim theologians would often divide alhamd into four natures or four types and I want to find the Arabic because it's very fascinating excuse me okay so 
the four types, what they used to describe as Alhamd al-Mutlaq, Hamd al-Tanzih, Hamd al-Muqabil, or Hamd al-Muqabala. I'll explain them in a second. So, first, it's Alhamd al-Mutlaq. This is a hand which is articulated by the Quran in praise of Allah's greatness in and of itself. So for when for the Quran for instance says Qul alhamdulillah ala والسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى قل الحمد لله a, a reminder of gratitude to Allah in Allah's self because of Allah's greatness unattached to anything else or for instance when the Quran says الحمد لله بل أكثرهم لا يعلمون here الحمد لله and then it, it moves on to another topic it's not attached to anything else Alhamdul is the highest form of hamd. When you finally understand that your gratitude to the divine rises above all material collections and all empirical results, you you have. They, they often described as um, when gratitude becomes your very nature whether you receive or do not receive it is described often as when you have complete access to the divinity within yourself so that in fact the very breath of life expresses gratitude. Alhamdulillah is often described as the type of hamd that nature has towards God. It is it is not complicated by um, what you get or what you give. The second hamd which is often described as Hamd al-Tanzih or Hamd waqa'a fi muqabala al-Tanzih dhatih anil naqais So, and, and I'll, let me just say the Arabic first and then explain Qul alhamdulillah alladhi lam yattakhiz walada for instance or alhamdulillah alladhi khalqa al-samawati wal-ard This is when the Quran expresses alhamd but explains that completes the idea by Tanzih, by, um, how do you translate Tanzih? Transcendence. Transcendence? Tra- by the tr- transcendent, uh, God transcendent above any shortcomings. So for instance, when the, when, uh, when the Quran says, Alhamdulillah, who never had a child, or 
Alhamdulillah who created the mountains and the heavens and the earth. It, the, the acknowledgement of Alhamd here is because of evidence of the greatness of God without any shortcoming or with where 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 no shortcoming is attached to the greatness of God. The best example is when when the Quran says Alhamdulillah, so gratitude be to God, Alhamdulillah, who have not taken a child, or. Uh, uh, that's the best of the example of Hamdit Tanzi. That you are recognizing that God is due, due uh, Hamd is due to God because God is the greatest in relation to other things. Third type of Hamd we often find in the Quran. Hamd al-Muqabala, this is Hamd al-Muqabil Na'mat al-Ijad. Hamd al-Muqabala means gratitude in return for something. Often the Quran will talk about Hamd in return for the blessing of creation. So as in Surah Al-Futar for instance, that's an example of that you are saying gratitude be to God who created the heavens or the earth. So gratitude be to God who feeds us. Gratitude to be to God who gives us blessings. The final hand often described as Hamd fi muqabalat ni'mat al-imdad often imdad hissi not imdad maddi but anyway uh, and what that means is for instance when say falillahi alhamd rabbul samawati wa rabbul ard rabbul alameen where you are saying alhamdulillah because of Allah's support of us or of them or of humanity, um, especially this type of hand is often in that hissi or in that ma'anawi that it is moral support, spiritual support. So, to summarize, Hamd Mutlaq, Hamd Tamzih, Hamd Igad, or Hamd Imdad. So, pure Hamd, unconnected to anything, Hamd Tamzih, or Hamd related to transcendence of Allah, and the Allah not having any shortcomings like having a child or 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 Allah not being ignorant or Allah uh, not being limited in knowledge and so on or 
حمد إمداد or sorry, or hamdi ijad, or hamdi imdad, or hamdi ijad, the gratitude for Allah as the creator, and hamdi imdad, gratitude for Allah as a supplier. Now, does these three forms of hams that we find in the, the four forms of ham that we find in the Quran make practical difference? In Islamic theology, you find considerable discussions that you start out with at the very elementary level your hand your gratitude to, towards God is often connected with your perception of what God gives you or supplies you 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 don't really connect with God as the creator of things nor God as transcendent and of course not as God, as pure gratitude, unconnected to anything. So the first form of hamd is often the most elementary and the most primitive, where if you are given, you feel gratitude. If God takes away from you, you feel ungrateful. Uh, if God doesn't give you, you say, why is God angry at me? Why is God upset at me? Why am I going through such a hard time? Why is it that I'm not being given what I'm income due and that's where the, most of the iman of people stay for most of their life at that level of gratitude um, they struggle they if they often even when they articulate hand it's often because Allah they think of all the things that Allah has given them and say oh I'm happy with Allah what Allah has given me I love the way my children are I love my, the way my home is, I love my career, the way it is, so I'm grateful. That's still hamd imdad. Hamd ijad is the higher level, or ijad, is the higher level where you actually, your gratitude is for Allah as the creator of the heavens and the earth, unrelated to whether you are given something or not given something. You understand that the creator is owed gratitude regardless of your personal enrichment vis-a-vis -vis that creator. The third level, the transcendent hamd, or hamd al-tamziyah, is with your start understanding something about the nature of the divine, that the divine is beautiful in and of the divine self and you fall in in love with that beauty and that perfection and you realize that the extent to which the divine is transcendent and beautiful and perfect so are you but only to the extent that you are derived from the divine as an extension of the divine the highest level and the level that is very difficult to reach for most people is alhamdulillah 
where your gratitude, you, you are grateful to God regardless of anything because you have achieved a level of union with the divine. So the Quran often has, has that expression, Alhamdulillah, and then it continues. And as I said, it expresses these four types of hamds. But Muslim theologians who, again, subhanAllah, they used to take the Quran far more seriously than, than we did. As they studied the way that Allah expresses the concept of alhamd, as I said, that there are four distinct types and that these four distinct types are related to the level of iman that a human being has. And that in the process of irtiqa, you are mindful of what type of hand are you anchored in as you seek a higher level of hand. Alhamdul Mutlaq, the best way I can describe it, because that's the hardest, unless you, you, you study a lot and you read a lot, and um, Alhamdulillah Mutlaq is literally, you know, when, when Hallaj um, was being tortured, uh, Hallaj was put to death, that's a famous Sufi, and he was being tortured, he would yell at the people who were torturing, or torturing him, Ziduni, Ziduni, give me more, give me more. That's maybe an extreme example of Alhamdulillah Mutlaq. For him, torture and pleasure became one and the same. Um, he's grateful for both. It, it doesn't matter whether you hurt him or you please him. Of course, that's an extreme example of Alhamdulillah Mutlaq. But that's how it looks like. You, you are intoxicated by the divine for the sake of the divine. You, you, whether you wake up in, in a bed or in a, in a trash can, it, it has become all the same to you. Uh, your gratitude for Allah is absolute and non-contingent. Uh, not even contingent on tanzih, which is on transcendence. Of course, you know, we can, this can turn into a very long halakha and alhamd, but since we will come back to it in many different contexts, inshallah, in different surah, but I wanted to introduce it now because of the point that Surah Al-Infitar makes about knowledge and about ulama, about scholars. And I wanted to give you an example early on of how those who took the Quran seriously and studied the Quran as serious scholarship and were truly scholars of the Quran, how much they learned from it and how much they elevated from it. Because there is a point that Surah Al-Futar has to make about scholars that is very critical, as we will see. And since in our modern age, some of the students here were telling me that their family and friends 
don't understand what it means to study the Quran for a year, or why should you study the Quran for a year? You know, why are you wasting time studying the Quran for a year? And I'm, 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 I'm quite honestly, as someone who's lived with books all her life, I'm stumped. I mean, a year. Studying the Quran for a year, you, you, you scratch the surface. Studying the Quran requires lifetimes, lifetimes, full time, doing nothing but studying the Quran, lifetimes. And I just have a complete cognitive dissonance. I, I, I don't understand Muslims anymore. When they are, don't understand why do you need a year to study the Quran, seriously? I mean, it, it, only that can be uttered by people who are completely oblivious or someone else who told someone about these halakas, oh, uh, uh, this is not Islamic because you don't need to, to dedicate yourself to study the Quran full time. Uh, you can study the Quran uh, as an extracurricular activity. What a civilizational failure. What a betrayal of the Quran. What an absolute evidence of decadence of thought and intellect and morality. Um, all of those people who like to talk about decolonialism all the time, decolonialism is, is not fancy talk about some literary critical theory and literary criticism. Decolonialism is to return to the fountain, the foundation of our morality and the foundations of our ethics as anchored in the one book that made us civilized human beings. We Muslims were nothing before the Quran and we became human beings after the Quran. You either take it seriously and embrace your humanness or you don't take it seriously and we remain on the marginality of humanity as we are where human being no one takes Muslims seriously in the world if we're if not worse I mean we we've gone from even in the worst periods, even during the Mongol invasions and the Crusader invasions, if you study how many centers they existed around the Muslim world for the Quranic studies, today the best Quranic study centers are in Western countries, Orientalist Quranic studies programs. It's absurd. It's unbelievable. Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. But, you know, I, I, yeah. Okay. Now, note, again, how much we can reflect on and learn from When Allah Allah tells you ponder existence 
who enjoys Allah's blessings and who is denied Allah's blessings and here blessings rahma mercy who exists in a state of relative mercifulness so if you look at the world who is suffering brutality and who is enjoying a relative state of mercy don't think that this is an accident so if you look at you know uh, i don't know i don't want to give a but let's say switzerland or sweden or finland or and you see that their people have relative stability have relative rahma while you look at people in syria or in iraq or yemen and you see that people have relative brutality don't think that this is an accident reflect on why and reflecting on why is ibadah is worship to allah when you study why is that the you know the finnish people or the swedish people have good health care system have a good educational system have stability have whatever while the state of people one of the things that i often hear uh muslims say for instance that you hear this from people from egypt from yemen from saudi from all over well you know we we Arabs or we Muslims or we Pakistanis or we you know the, the you can't compare us to the civilized countries like Sweden and Switzerland and so on uh, because with us we need dictators to keep us in 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 uh, in shape uh, if you we don't have dictators ruling over us we would be in trouble people who say things like that are as alien from the spirit and, and Quranic learning as you can possibly imagine for instance look at the following so when Muslim scholars are discussing the second verse I hate technology. Let me try to find this discussion. So there is a hadith. It was mentioned uh, on Muaz radiallahu um, it exists in several versions, some versions that are marfu'a, others are not. But anyway, the, the hadith says, لا تزال يد الله مبسوطة على هذه الأمة ما لم يرفق خيارهم بشرارهم ويعظم برهم فاجرهم وتعب قراءهم أمرائهم على معصية الله فإذا فعلوا ذلك نزع الله يده عنهم. So, in the context of talking about the second verse that Allah's mercy is bestowed upon Allah whomever Allah wills uh, 
they will often discuss this hadith that says that Allah mercy will continue to be enjoyed by this ummah, by Muslims. Until what? When does Allah's mercy when does Allah take away Allah's mercy from this ummah? Listen to this and reflect on it. Until those who are good doers in this ummah start tolerating and doing nothing about those who commit evil. And those who are pious start hypocritically praising those who are impious. So you might be a pious religious person, but because your ruler or your leader or your boss, you need them and you know they're impious, but you praise them anyway. And those who are Qur'a'um, a Qur'a' is another word for scholars. Their scholars start lending support to the injustices of the rulers. So the scholars no longer stand in front of injustice. When that happens, the hadith says, Allah then takes his mercy away from this ummah. So that this ummah can do dua, Allah please give us victory. Allah have mercy upon us, but nothing. Allah's mercy has been taken away. Those who say, and it's so common, and remember, you know, I'm of Egyptian origin, so um, I hear it from Egyptians all the time. Oh, this is the, you know, we, we, there's no, we, this is the only way that you can rule over Muslims through a, a, an unjust dictator. A tyrant. To study Rahmatullah ala al-Bashar, to study where Allah's mercy is, and you, you study where, who enjoys Allah's mercy in this world and who doesn't. And to understand from that, that Allah is talking to you directly. In the same way that if we study creation and we find deformities in creation, Allah is talking to us directly. Nothing is just an accident. Nothing is just happening outside of Allah's attention. This is the Quranic view. This is the Quranic worldview. There is no other view. Um, be, before I, I um, well, no, okay. Um, well, no, um, no, okay. 
يا أيها الناس اذكروا نعمة الله عليكم هل من خالق غير الله يرزقكم من السماء والأرض لا إله إلا هو فأنا تؤفكون So all mankind remember God's blessing is there a creator other than God فأنا تؤفكون So what how can you be so perverted is the way that the study Quran translates it It's self-explanatory, but it's anchored in this worldview that I was just talking about. It is a perversion to leave Allah out of your understanding of creation, whether history, whether science, whether economics, whether anything. It's our the scholars have spent a great deal of effort to say the basic idea that in everything Allah is talking to you Muslims. As Muslims you cannot simply be marginal to existence. Okay, then uh, the comment that Allah makes to the Prophet والسلام, saying, you know, it, as the as often the Quran does, don't be surprised if they deny you. Don't be surprised if they do not believe you. They've disbelieved prophets before, and that's what is the common thing. But from that it immediately segues back again to human beings and says, Ya ayyuhan nas, inna wa'ad Allah haqq, fala taghurrannakum al-hayatu al-dunya, wa la yaghurrannakum billahi al-gharun. An unbelievable expression. Human beings, Allah's promise is the truth. Fala yaghurrannakum al-hayatu al-dunya, so let not life on this earth delude you. And uh, the Quran says, and not let the deluder delude you concerning God. Okay. If a remarkable expression. Don't be misled, deluded, tricked by life on this earth in thinking that it is pointless, that it has no purpose, or that it has no owner and manager and creator. And don't, there are a number of readings for So is it, if it's, if you say Is it referring, don't let shaitan who is the deluder delude you? Or is it saying, 
don't let if if it then if you read it don't let your own arrogance your own egoism delude you it is probably saying both on the one hand so what is the fundamental purpose of life on earth it is a test it is izad lil akhira it is a, a, your 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 theater for the hereafter it is really just a stage a step to the hereafter if you understand this world as anything but a mere step to the hereafter then you have become deluded this is if I tell you you can't imagine the amount of ink that Muslims have written on this specific point which is by the way distinctly Islamic this outlook is distinctly Islamic it exists in Christianity a bit in the sense that you accept Jesus Christ and then you attain salvation but the idea that life on this earth is a mere transition to what really matters is is distinctly i mean if in islamic outlook it's abrahamic that this is the original message of abraham but it was constantly distorted by being de-emphasized by by the interpreters of judaism and christianity that time and again human beings gravitate towards the idea that it is all about this life and that the hereafter is of secondary importance or marginal importance or obscure importance or vague importance but in the Quranic outlook it is front and center the most important thing that I want to point out here is that so many of the commentators talk about the biggest form of delusion that the shaitan practices with believers as opposed to non-believers is an amani is that the shaitan effectively or, or shaitan consistently tells people don't worry Allah will forgive you There is a very nice quote um, in, from Tafsir um, al-Jilani, but we, we don't need it. Not really. uh, that Shaitan consistently goes to, to people and say, you know, don't worry about it, Allah will forgive you. Uh, it, Allah is most forgiving and that is remarkable because I don't think the people who wrote all of this 
could have imagined how central that idea becomes in the modern age. In modernity, everyone has that type of attitude, uh, far more than in their time. But other than the delusions of the shaitan, the greater, the big deluder is the self and the ego. The self and the ego will always plead to you that you are an exception and special circumstance. That Al-Gharur will always plead to you a sense of injustice that you have not received your due or received your rights. So when we are training people at the beginning, at the very beginning, we tell students, forget the concept. I've talked to you about um, some of my, my own experiences anchored in service. That at the very beginning, they tell you, you want the path? Well, there's no hope for you in the past unless you completely erase the idea at the beginning of I have rights, I am entitled, give me, give me, give me. The way you train people is you anchor them in service. When you've obliterated that ego, that sense of entitlement, of what am I getting? What's my share? It's not fair. It, then you can start seeing clearly. Before then, all your salah, all your psalm, all your ibadat are contaminated by the ego. It is not that the, the, the people who, the shiuch, enjoy putting anyone to service, but it is fundamental that the, the biggest demon inside of you is that demon that constantly tells you, I deserve more. As you mature and your iman increases, then you deal with that demon with a sense of balance. So it becomes a part of your dignity. What am I entitled? What's my right? What's the right of others? You have that wisdom to balance that. But as you are, if you want to walk that path, cleanse yourself of al-gharur, of that self-entitled self at the beginning of your journey. Obliterate it. If you want the path, you want to humble yourself into true Iman, start out with service. When my mother, Allah would tell me, we're going to have dinner, set the plates. Of course, you know, as a kid, 
why me? Why should I set the plates? It's not fair. You know, I've set the plates three times this week and my sister set it up only once. These are all, of course, real memories. <laughs> um, or pick up after dinner, which, you know, it took a lifetime. Well, I mean, not a lifetime, but it, it, I realized from later on is that my mother was calibrating the service to the ego needs of her children. It was not about setting the plates or picking up after dinner. It was about humility as key to piety. We often don't teach this to our children anymore. And we often, the way we talk to our children doesn't center them in the notion that your gharur is that sense of self-entitlement and that if you want the path of Allah, start with service. We don't do that as our children anymore. To our great loss, and that's why as a civilization we crumbled. That's why as a civilization we crumbled. Individuals, a bunch of egotistical individuals cannot build a civilization. cannot build a civilization because they cannot honor their parents. If you're an egotistical individual, you cannot honor your elders, you cannot honor your scholars, you cannot honor your parents, you cannot honor wisdom, you cannot honor experience, you cannot honor the entire structure of so social infrastructure falls apart. So, subhanAllah, in this short expression, Remarkable. An entire philosophy exploded onto the scene with that very short expression. It's not just the devil. It's you. إِنَّ الشَّيْطَانَ لَكُمْ عَدُوٌّ فَاتَّخِذُوهُ عَدُوًّا إِنَّمَا يَدْعُوا حِزْبَهُ لِيَكُونُوا مِنْ أَصْحَابِ السَّعِيرِ And be very clear-headed that you do have an enemy, an arch enemy, in fact. And that arch enemy is the demonic. And as we'll see, the, the rest of the surah will, will give us greater insight about this. And you do have, you have to make a decisive choice. A surah father, remember, father is the separator, the originator. The one who is breaking something from something. A surah father told us, you do have to make a conscious choice of what party are you going to belong to. Because there is a distinct party, as we as when we'll see in the rest of the story, there is a distinct party that can be called Hizb al-Shaytan. The party that belongs clearly affiliated. Remember Shaytan 
which we were we, we already the Quran told us that Shaitan tells Allah after refusing to prostrate and defying Allah and says, Well, I will be their sworn enemy and I will target them and so on and so forth. And already Muslims have been exposed to this idea. But now Surah Fatr comes and says you cannot forget that fact just because you don't see shaitan, you must be clear-headed in your existence about which party can be said to owe their loyalty to shaitan. And where do you stand from this party? Surah Fatr doesn't tell you go out and slaughter this party. It doesn't tell you go out and exercise them. It doesn't tell you go out and, you know, say Jesus compels you. It doesn't, none of that. But it is as a moral choice. Are you aware of which party is affiliated with shaitan? And where do you stand from that? Okay, then of course it, the reminder, the, the exhortation that the consequences of the choice that we make, but then Surah Fatah comes to and says to us something that de deserves a lot of reflection. And it presents it in the form of a rhetorical question. In the form of a rhetorical question, without explicitly telling us the answer to the rhetorical question or the consequence of the rhetorical question. So look at this. Okay, so that's the rhetorical question. The and what of one, the evil of whose deeds has been made to seem fair to him such that he thinks is, it is beautiful? So the rhetorical question, and what about those who see their evil deeds, su al-amal, su al-amal is not necessarily evil deeds, but bad behavior, as beautiful. After posing this rhetorical question, it moves right away to say, and Allah guides whomever Allah wills. So it's as if it, it poses that rhetorical question and leaves it hanging. Begs the question, why does it do that? Why does it ask the rhetorical question and leaves it hanging? Why doesn't it say, well, you know, and those who think that their evil deeds are beautiful, those are, you know, the losers, those are the troublemakers, those are the ones who are, it just poses it, and then it says, Allah will guide whoever Allah wishes. Note that Surah Fatir is about 
determining your position vis-a-vis -vis the choices in life between what is clearly right and what is clearly wrong and between that is not so clear. So it comes and it invites you to reflect upon those the the a, a, a reflect upon a if you will a social practice a habit that so many people will claim that what they do is good what they do is beautiful what they do is useful Well, for Surah Fatir, what, what measure can you use as to how to evaluate claims about good deeds or bad deeds? And as we will see, Surah Fatir's answer, skipping ahead a little bit, is... What good is the good deed presented anchored in an, in, in, a, in an intent to be with Allah or not? So in other words, it is not the empirical results alone that determine beauty from ugliness. But whether these empirical results are anchored in a divine path or not. And the commentary to the Prophet, it is as if Allah is telling the Prophet, you know, I know that as a Prophet, you can see through these claims that people make that I well you know I'm actually a good doer and wh wh why do you think I'm just because I don't believe in God you think I'm bad just because I reject God you think that this is so awful I know that you see through this and it pains you because actually the, there's a lot again when we retell the seerah it is remarkable of how much sorrow how sad the prophet is consistently uh, reported to be at the fact that his people are so misguided. And it used to cause him real pain, not figurative pain, but real pain, to, to see people he loves and cares about, including friends from childhood, including people that he knew from 40 years that he worked with and lived with and so on, that they delude themselves. That when he goes and tells them, and he, they say, well, you know, we, we feed the poor, we take care of the pilgrims that come to the Kaaba, we do this, we do that. What's wrong with our lifestyle? Why do we need to believe in Allah? And it used to pain him. And so Allah tells him basically, you know, don't beat yourself over it. If Allah would have willed, they would have believed. But this is not what Allah has willed. 
Okay. Then, in again, like it, like a constitutional document of faith, Surah Fatir then moves on to say, and Allah moves the clouds to bring rain, and you know what? This is exactly the way that Allah will bring resurrect people back. In the same way that you see an arid land, a desert, and there is rain, and then suddenly there is vegetation, well, it's very easy for Allah. It's it, for God. It's very easy to bring back people to life. In the same way that vegetation seems to appear out of nowhere after rain, that the logic of creation is that Allah can put seeds that survive for very long times in land and these seeds just wait for water to suddenly sprouted life. And that for Allah to resurrect people, it is as simple a matter as that. There is a hadith that a man goes to the Prophet and says, how is it that Allah will be able to resurrect people in the hereafter? And the Prophet recites recites Surah Fatir and say, have you ever passed by an arid valley and then passed by later in the winter and found that valley to be full of green after rain? And the, 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 the guy says, yes, I have. And he says, well, that's exactly the way resurrection is going to be. Um, Again, the goes back to the concept of father, but right after this, after this apparent segue, but we'll, we'll comment on it in a second. Apparent segue, the Quran then takes us to another constitutional concept that deserves as much reflection as مَنْ كَانَ يُرِيدُ الْعِزَّةِ فَلِلَّهِ الْعِزَّةُ جَمِيعًا As if Allah is talking to your inside, to the psychology of the believer. So Allah at first tells you, do you know that shaitan, are you aware that shaitan is your enemy? Are you aware that there are people who effectively are shaitan's party. Don't be deceived by shaitan, but shall I tell you another thing? Don't be deceived by your own ego, because that's your living shaitan. And keep in mind that there are consequences to everything. And remember 
that this life is a test. And this life as a test is full of deceptions. There are people who claim that they're doing beautiful things all the time, and in fact, they're destroying everything. Just because people build beautiful structures and beautiful buildings or the pyramids or things like that, for instance, you know, you have a mission that is far more fundamental. Ask yourself, is it anchored in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or is it not? And remember that this world, Allah is anchored in everything in this world, but and resurrection is no big deal for Allah. It's not a miraculous event for Allah. And as if Allah then comes speaking to your inside and says, now that I've told you all of this, if you are listening to me, I'm going to tell you another thing. If you want real Izzah, remember we, we've talked about Izzah, right? Before. Which surah was it? Psalm, right? If you want, and this in Futar is after Saad. Saad has already been revealed. Now, so then in Futar comes and says, or Zorat Fatar comes and says, well, if you want real Izza, remember that Izza only exists in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if you want real honor, I know, it's as if Allah is saying, I know that your ego will, will tell you that honor is in status symbols. Honor is in your family relationships. Honor is in your degrees. Honor is in your wealth. Honor is whatever. They, they. But if you are going to ta walk the path of Iman, then you must understand that real honor belongs only to Allah. And real honor is defined by your relationship to Allah. And then says something that is earth-shattering. Allah tells you then, and remember, so I'm not telling you this, but I'm also telling you that any kalam tayyib any kind words go up to Allah. But this remark, So let's see how these guys translate it. Um, ten. Um, uh, they can, no. Uh, yeah. To God, so up to him ascends the good word and he uplifts the righteous deeds. Uh, no. Okay, there is an issue here. So, he told you that if you want real glory or real honor, then you must understand that every, everything that people claim as glory and honor is a deception in this world. 
real honor in its real sense is your relationship with Allah. And of course, this is a huge challenge. But then Allah told you, well, the evidence of this honor, kind words which go up to Allah, here, now, the ha here it refers to what? Is Allah saying that kind words rise to Allah and Allah uplifts good deeds? But that doesn't make a lot of sense because so kind words rise by themselves and good deeds need Allah to uplift them? Why? What, or is it that kind words rise to Allah, but kind words are uplifted by good deeds? So in other words, kind words matter, but they don't matter as much as when they are affirmed by good deeds. It's as if Allah is saying, you, you want glory, you want izzah? Remember what we said about service? You want izzah? Okay. Your path is kind words affirmed by good deeds. You don't have kind words, you don't have good deeds, you don't have Azza. It boggles me what happened to Muslims. It is clear that the early Muslims read this and said, okay, they became well, I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. They became the sanitation workers of Mecca. After Surah Fatir, they understood when the Prophet ﷺ said, Iman is Imatatul Azan al Tariq, that kind words and good deeds, so you go around removing any garbage that might harm people walking in the streets. The early Muslims became the living example of Izzatullah. They, they became the good doers of Mecca. Rendering service for nothing. Not, no expectations. If there is an old woman that needs help, they helped. If there is an animal that, need, that needed to be fed, they fed it. If there's an animal that needed water, they gave the animal water. If it, even the stories that they would go around and if they see an animal carrying a, a, a burden that is too heavy, they would speak on behalf of the animal. They would say, you can't treat your animal this way, it's haram. They got the message. Surah Al-Fatir came 
of course, as, as I said, it was after Furqan and Araf and so on because there's a gradation to it. But it was, okay, who needs help? We here the Muslims are here. What happened? When I told you we don't understand our Quran anymore, I'm not kidding you. But literally, there was a transformation. Muslims became, Hezbollah became the people who you can count on to stand by you and help you. That's why Islam started attracting so many converts because these were the upright people. These were the people you can count on. They're going to help. There are reports that people who were in debt, not Muslim, would go to the Prophet and complain to him because of the reputation Muslims had, and even those people who were in debt, some, there's a famous story of this guy who was in debt, and according, there was indentured service. So if he couldn't pay back his debt, he was going to be sold, he was going to become the creditor's slave. So he went to the Prophet, and he said, I, all Mecca talks about the uprightness of Muslims and how they help Al-Gharim. Can you free me of, from my bond? And the Prophet ﷺ went around, collected money from fellow Muslims to free this man from his bond. Of course, he converted to Islam shortly after. But look, look at the, 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 the power of it, how it comes and transforms a human being into something other than a selfish, egotistical idiot. And then, of course, Allah immediately comes to, goes and says, and keep in mind that no, this is just by the way. ثم جعلكم جعل هو خلقكم من تراب ثم من نطفة ثم جعلكم أزواجا and made you partners. It has always intrigued me. This is a personal observation. It has always intrigued me that it has always says وجعلكم أزواجا. You have partners, not multiple wives, but partners. Like the expectation, Quranic expectation is always couples, not multiple marriages. And Allah is cognizant of everything that there is no pregnancy, there is no event. وَلَا يَنْقُصُ مِنْ عُمْرِهِ إِلَّا فِي كِتَابٍ وَمَا يُعَمَّرُ مِنْ مُعَمَّرٍ وَمَا وَلَا يَنْقُصُ مِنْ عُمْرِهِ إِلَّا فِي كِتَابٍ إِنَّ ذَلِكَ عَلَى اللَّهِ يَسِيرٌ There is a long discussion in this context about this particular ayah. Um, 
that if I mean if you're interested, you can. Ismail Haqqi has a, a, a nice. Uh, you can find it in Ismail Haqqi. You can find it in Razi. You can find it in Matari in Matridi. A discussion about what, what Allah is saying that okay, Allah is aware of every pregnancy and every birth. Okay. And Allah has determined every length of life. Okay. But there is a question. When Allah says, وَلَا يَنْقُصُ مِنْ عُمْرِهِ And Allah, and a life is not shortened, or Allah doesn't shorten a life, except it is in a book. Muslim theologians had a long debate as to whether it is possible for someone to die literally before their time. So in other words, Allah said, let's say in Allah's book, you know, you're going to live until you are 65. But some guy comes along and kills you. Has that person prematurely ended your life? Of course it happened with Allah's permission. Because if Allah wanted to stop it, but has effectively you've been robbed years from your life and of course with modern muslims they they, they would uh, be scandalized that there's a debate about this because i'm sure they'll all say oh no it's, it's all in a book it's all determined it's all but i don't think the, the remarkable thing is that the discussion in the islamic tradition was very honest and very open and the there were many theologians that believed that the answer is yes. You you can die before your time. And with Allah's permission, yes, but you can be robbed of your life. And so, is the shortening of a life occurs because of contingencies that materialize, that constitute an, an infraction, an offense against the life of a human being. And then they go into, you know, that's part of the, the, the great injustice or the great offense of killing. With their, um, and again, it's very interesting because the example they always gave is a tyrant putting people to death. So that tyrant, and and I think probably, I mean, I'm, I'm wonder if the the legacy of people like Al-Hajjaz affected them when they were having. I I don't know because they they don't ever cite Al-Hajjaj, but I'm wondering if if you know. Tyrants like Al-Hajjaj would have affected their discussions, but they would say, you know, is that tyrant when they confront Allah is part of the sin that this tyrant carries before Allah is that they have offended Allah's will 
because they extinguish a life before its due time. That that level of, of infraction that you've actually gone against Allah's order of things. They have a very similar discussion, by the way, about um, uh, uh, one of the things that Muslim theologians absolutely detested was killing animals for sport, which is haram. You can't kill animals for sport. You can kill them in Allah's name to eat them, but you can't kill them for sport. And they would have these discussions as to whether these animals are killed for sport. You are actually offending against Allah, blaspheming against Allah, because you are ending, prematurely ending the, li the lives of these animals. Um, not to scare you, but they also have a discussion about this, uh, about ants. If you ever, if any of you ever stomped on ants, that, you know, uh, if you kill ants, then the hereafter, you have to answer to the fact that, you know, X number of ants were supposed to live, I don't know how long, but, but for your intervention. And that's an offense against Allah. I uh, I used to uh, believe in the idea that no one dies before their time and that all murders are predestined. Um, but after studying and reading this nature for so long, and uh, I've changed my mind, and I believe that, yes, murders do end lives prematurely. And that that's part of the the gravity of the sin, is that you are directly defying Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala by interfering with a life uh, before it's time. And that that's why it, it, part of the gravity of the sin, um, it's extremely serious. Okay, and now we're going to come to. 12, which is a big deal about the two C's are not equal. But it's such a big deal that I need a break before we take it on. So let's take two minutes break. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So the, uh, Rami found the, the quote from Jilani that I referred to. Uh, do you want to give me the quote? Yeah, I was, I was when I uh, discussing uh, and I mentioned that there is a quote from Jilani. So this is a quote. يعني لا يلبس عليكم الشيطان المكار الغرار الغدار بأن يوقع في قلوبكم أن رحمة الله واسعة وفضله كثير ولطفه عام. وأن الله سبحانه استغني عن طاعتكم وعبادتكم وأن فعل الإلام لا يتصور من الحكيم العلام إلى غير ذلك من الحيل العائقة لكم عن التقوى والتزود للنشأة الأخرى. So basically that thank you that Jilal is saying that among the the tricks of the devil and also the tricks of of the ego. Uh, it's to imagine, it's to, to 
simply tell yourself, well, Allah is most forgiving and Allah will not really punish me because Allah is merciful and kind and compassionate. And to use that as an excuse to minimize um, the offenses committed by oneself. And we, we all know that that is, that is the way that often we indulge in sin, is to basically count on Allah's mercy and take it for granted. Uh, the other thing I, I uh, just uh, forgot to mention um, in the uh, uh, that the, I, the in the discussion on izza, uh, honor and glory with Allah and that true honor is there uh, I just want to note that in language, when we say Ard Izaz, it means Ard um, Salba or a, a firm ground. So a, the, 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 the firmest type of ground, the most solid form of ground is called Izaz. And Al Aziz. It's something that is undefeatable and cannot be defeated. Um, so, this the, the notion that Allah as a solid foundation for oneself and that that is the source of real honor is what is intended in this discourse. Okay. So now let's move on. وَمَا يَسْتَوِي الْبَحْرَانِ هَذَا عَزْبٌ فِرَاطٌ سَابِغٌ شَرَابُهُ وَهَذَا مِلْحٌ إِجَاجٌ وَمِنْ كُلٍ تَأْكُلُونَ لَحْمًا طَرِيًّا وَتَسْتَخْرِجُونَ حِلْيَةً تَلْبِسُونَهَا وَتَرَى الْفُلْكَ فِيهِ مَوَاخِرٍ لِتَبْتَغُوا مِنْ فَضْلِهِ وَلَعَلَّكُمْ تَشْكُرُونَ يُولِجُ اللَّيْلَ فِي النَّهَارِ وَيُولِجُ النَّهَارَ فِي اللَّيْلِ وَسَخَّرَ الشَّمْسُ وَالْقَمَرُ كُلٌّ يَجْرِي لِأَجَلٍ مُسَمَّى ذَلِكُمُ اللَّهُ رَبُّكُمْ لَهُ الْمُلْكُ وَالَّذِينَ تَدْعُونَ مِنْ دُونِهِ مَا يَمْلِكُونَ مِنْ قِطْمِيرٍ So this is 12 and 13. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then the mention in here of the two seas and uh, one sea as the as the ayah goes one sweet satisfying pleasant to drink and the other salty bitter salty and bitter yet from each you eat fresh meat and bring out ornaments that you wear and that you see ships plowing through that you may seek of God's bounty and that you may give thanks. 
that God makes the night pass into day and makes the day pass into night. And God has made the sun and the moon subservient, each running for a term appointed. That is God your Lord. To him belongs, or to, to, to God belongs sovereignty. Um, and that those upon whom you call apart from God, they do not possess so much as the husk of a date stone, kutmir, is the, the, literally the skin, the thin skin of a date, um, which is an indication of something very small. Okay, so the allusion here to two seas, freshwater sea, rivers and ponds and so on and salty sea they're not equals but yet from both there is benefit from both you get food and you get from salty sea you get ornaments and that Allah brings the night into day and the day into night um, pass the uh, makes the day pass into night and the night pass into the into day and so on so the most significant discussion in this context is the contrast between two seas is understood. So Allah is saying that you must learn to differentiate between things that are not equal and that the yardstick, the constitutional foundation for your judgment must be what is with God and what is not with God. But here, yet here, the contrast is between two seas, both that are beneficial. And the most remarkable aspect about this is that Muslim theologians then point out that while Allah, as Allah will, will say in shortly, that darkness and light are not equal. But even in good and evil, or even in judging what is with God or what is not with God, you must learn to understand that there are gradations. Because sometimes even what is not with God yields some good, like the salt sea. And the night and day, if you look at the night and day from a, a distant perspective, each is contingent on the other, and each moves in gradations into the other. From this there are a lot of there are a lot of moral lessons about patience that if you approach a salt sea you cannot wish it to become freshwater sea if you want 
to turn salt water into fresh water, it will take a lot of effort and a lot of patience. Um, that you cannot approach the salt sea and condemn, as one of my favorite passages, is that a, a person who condemns the salt sea as evil is a fool and therefore refuses to deal with the salt sea as is a fool because yet there is things that are good within the salt sea so we are invited on the one hand to a recognition that there that the demonic does have a party and there are things that are clearly in the side of the demonic but at the same time we are told to be discerning and non-dogmatic in our judgment because if we look at the salt sea and condemn the salt sea and therefore are unable to extract what is good from the salt sea, we have become exactly that, dogmatic in our judgment. And if we lose sight of the fact that the night and day exchange roles in gradations, we lose a great deal of wisdom. So it is not, it's often, it, it, it's a simple point, but at the same time a profound one, is that the true alim, the true scholar, will look at the night and see in the night the potential of the day and look at the day and fear the way that the day can descend into the night. A true scholar would look at the night and tell, call upon people how to come out of the night and emerge into a day. And a true scholar, if they exist during the day, would warn the people about the coming of the night. Note that in both cases, as we will see in Surah Father, the role of the scholar is to speak openly and bravely, not to affirm delusions of people. But if they exist in the night, to tell them you exist in darkness and a day is possible and here's what we need to do to emerge into the light. And if they exist in light, to tell them you do exist in light, thank God, alhamdulillah, but here are the warnings of what could happen that would make the, night, the, the day descend into night. Similarly, there are very interesting discussions about whether you um, human beings can exist in effectively the, the figurative equivalent of a salt sea, um, where they extract ornaments and they extract uh, delicious meat, fish, uh, but they don't exist that they are drinking salt sea, that they are drinking what is not nourishing to their souls. Of course, some of the commentators thought that they, they their day and time uh, 
was equivalent to the Salt Sea, but I think they had no idea. Uh, if they would have visited our age, they would have realized that they actually, their day and time was very fresh water. The real Salt Sea is in our time, not theirs. Um, the delusions of thinking, well, I have ornaments. Ornaments here is, is symbolic figuratively for decorations and, uh, you know, beautiful, glamorous things. I have ornaments and I have the wealth of the sea. And so who needs fresh water? And the, the uh, um, I believe it was Sayyid Qutb who said that, uh, of course, Sayyid Qutb was a modern commentator, who, who said, you know, it, uh, how do you, how do you tell people who have never tested, tasted fresh water that they need fresh water? But that's the role of the scholar. If a scholar doesn't live up to that role, then they have failed themselves and failed God. The reason I'm emphasizing the scholar is that, as you'll see, you'll, you'll see in a second why. But then, subhanAllah, right after this, so, because you might wonder, okay, well, wait, so I'm supposed to know that there is a party of the devil and a party of God, but there are murky situations where I could have salt water and not recognize that as salt water, or I could be in fresh water, but the fresh water is becoming, what is it called, salinized, when it becomes salty. Um, yeah, um, and so how can I guard against this? What's the key? And subhanAllah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes right after this and tells you the key. What is the key? Ya ayyuhal nas antumul fuqara illallah. This just this short expression, Ya ayyuhal nas antumul fuqara illallah. The impact of that not even complete ayah yet. That just expression, that phrase, Wallahu al Ghanir Hamid is the rest of it. On Muslim culture cannot be exaggerated. I want to see how he turns in. Um, yeah. Uh, of course, the, oh man, all oh humankind, you are needful of God. No, not needful of God. Literally, without Allah, you are in poverty. You want to know how to be able to differentiate between good and bad and in between situations. Recognize the extent to which you need Allah or need the acknowledgement of Allah in your life. If you truly understand that 
nothing is given to anyone except by purposeful decision by the divine. I mean, if you see the Russians able to bomb Syria at will, if you see the Chinese able to intern Muslims at will, okay, this is not happenstance. This is not an accident. Reflect on what actual elements that led to the development of these actual events and understand that everything must be analyzed in reference to your essential poverty, your essential dependence on Allah, and that all unfolds with Allah's express will then you will understand how to differentiate between darkness and night, between the fresh water and the salt water, and between existence in salt water and existence in salt in, in fresh water. In other words, you will not be confused by relativism, but you will have an anchor of absolute clear values. And then judgment anchored in wisdom that negotiates between the clear values. So much so that you read tons of theologians who said if you want to sum up Islamic wisdom in its entirety, it is summed up in this phrase, Antum al-Fuqara illallah. You are in a state of impoverishment without Allah. Now, this Antum al-Fuqara illallah, Allah, Wallahu al-Ghaniyul Hamid. Wallahu al-Ghaniyul Hamid. This is the dhikr for Surah Fatr. You fall in love with Allah when you stay in a state of dhikr and you first you're saying ya ayyuhan nas antum al fuqara ilallah wallahu al ghani al hamid and then before you know it you're talking to Allah and say Allah ana al faqiru ilayk wa anta al ghani al hamid ana al faqiru ilayk wa anta al ghani al hamid it is you start feeling that if you move an arm, it is because of Allah. If you sit up straight, it's because of Allah. 
if you have a shelter, it's because of Allah. If you hear a clock ticking, it's because of Allah. Everything in your body is because of Allah. Everything around you is because of Allah. Suddenly, everything becomes alive to the point that if your back hurts, it's because of Allah. If your head hurts, it's because of Allah. If your legs fall numb, it's because of Allah. And then there is these moments that come where you truly start understanding what it means to feel that you are, you actually do not exist but in Allah. You, the extent, you literally say, feel that the extent to which, the extent to which you are an extension of the divine, you are happy. But the extent to which you forget that you are utterly derived from the divine, then you feel lost and alienated and restless. It's, that is the moment where you actually fall in love. Antum al-Hamid is an entire philosophy. It's a philosophy of everything. But it is not a philosophy of defeatism and apathy and weakness. Actually, it is quite the contrary. It is the philosophy in which you understand if, the, if something is the product of the demonic, like injustice, like oppression, like suffering, you become angered by it. Because you know that as an extension of the divine, you are a living rebellion against injustice and against oppression. That is the natural state of a Muslim. A Muslim that accepts humiliation, that accepts deprecation, something very wrong. A Muslim that accepts oppression, that accepts despotism, something is really wrong. The thing that clear that the early Muslims was given by Islam was a profound sense of identity and self-worth. And of course, Allah tells us what is obvious, that the idea of Allah, as Allah has created human beings and created jinn and created malaika, it is not a big deal for Allah to wipe out 
this creation and create something entirely new. Don't foreclose, don't believe that you are the end all, the beginning and the end. Creation is much bigger than that. And Allah is much bigger than that. Okay, well, and then this became, this is now Ayah 18, becomes an anchor for Islamic law, Islamic ethics, Islamic morality, Islamic values. وَلَا تَزِرُ وَازِرَةٌ وَزْرَ أُخْرَى وَإِن تَدْعُوا مُثْقَلَةٌ إِلَى حِمْلِهَا لَا يُحْمَلُ مِنْهُ شَيْءٌ وَلَوْ كَانَ ذُو قُرْبَى إِنَّمَا تُنْذِرُ الَّذِينَ يَخْشَوْنَ رَبَّهُمْ بِالْغَيْبِ وَأَقَامُوا الصَّلَاةِ وَمَنْ تَزَكَّى فَإِنَّمَا تَزَكَّى لِنَفْسِهِ وَإِلَى اللَّهِ الْمَصِيرِ what became a foundation of all principles? La taziru azira No one can be held responsible for the fault of another. And no one can carry the burden of another. In for Islamic law, it became a foundational principle of justice. Collective punishments is the definition of injustice. What do the Israelis do as Palestinians? Whenever they someone hurts an Israeli, or they, they claim someone hurt an Israeli, they go and blow up Palestinian homes. Collective punishment. The definition of injustice. In Egypt, if you oppose Sisi's government, they arrest your family. They arrest your brothers, they arrest your cousin, they arrest your uncles. The definition of injustice. The fact that you find Muslims all over the world defending tyrants who don't respect the principle of La Tazru wa Zira itself speaks volumes. The fact that you have Muslims today rushing to make peace with Israel, regardless of the amount of injustice that Israel inflicts on Palestinians, is profound proof of how much we deviated from the Quran. The Quran anchored that principle. Responsibility is personal and individual. You can't punish A to get at B, and there's no around individual accountability and responsibility. And then reminding the Prophet, and through the Prophet to us, that all of these principles that Surah Fatir is just laying out like a constitutional foundation. Remember, it's, it's reading like principle one, principle two, principle three. Is most effective with those yakhshawna rabbahum bil ghaib, who those understand the, the reality of an unseen God. Yes, God is unseen but present. But 
It's not a theoretical understanding. It is bolstered by prayer and tazakki. Now here, we pause for a second. Why? Tazakka here is not just paying zakah. Tazakka is the process of obtaining purification by sacrificing material wealth. So it was for a long time it emerged in Muslim culture that if you wanted to protect yourself against poverty that you always take a chunk of your monthly earnings and give them to the poor to purify the rest of your money. Till even, you know, when I was a child, whenever the family would get, you know, prepare a duck or a chicken for, it was usually an invitation. My my elders, the, the whether it was grandparents or, or, or other elders, they would always say, okay, this portion has to go to the poor so that we can eat the rest in a blessing. That if you don't give a portion to the poor, then the rest is cursed. That long practice comes from tazakki. That you are purifying. Again, that my elders in Eid, when they buy us new clothes, they would always, in order to, to make sure that the new clothes is blessed, they would always have to purchase something that they would give away to the poor. Where is that practice? I mean, it was still alive in my childhood. Where is that practice? You cannot earn money. You cannot wear clothes. You cannot enjoy anything without purifying it by giving a portion to those who deserve it. Okay. And then now, Your foundation is Antum al-Fuqara'ilallah and believing in Allah and believing in Ghayb and prayer and the practice of tazakki, purification. After telling you all of these foundational principles now, وَمَا يَسْتَوِي الْأَعْمَى وَالْبَصِيرُ وَلَا الظُّلُمَاتُ وَلَا النُّورُ وَلَا الظِّلُّ وَلَا الْحَرُورُ وَلَا يَسْتَوِي الْأَحْيَاءُ وَلَا الْأَمْوَاتُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُسْمِعُ مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَمَا أَنْتَ بِمُسْمِعٍ مَنْ فِي الْقُبُورِ So after all of this, it comes and affirms blindness, the blind and seeing are not equals. Darkness and light are not equals. The comfort or dhil is being in a shaded area. Al-harur or 
the type of wind that was heated and poisonous. And it could, that wind could blow in the desert at night or in the day. Odor Harur usually referred to the, the wind that blew in the day, but that hot, poisonous wind that was not good for your health um, is a turbulent state, very different than resting in a shaded area. And those who are dead and those who are alive. And remember that you, speaking to the Prophet and through the Prophet to us, you cannot convey a message to those who are effectively in their graves. So, having told you that there are um, relative situations, if you will, like the salt sea and the fresh sea, but then it takes you back and affirms that understand that if you live your life with the principle of antum al-fuqara ilallah, that you exist in a state of complete dependence on Allah, you will start seeing that there are people who live in darkness, people who live in graves, people who live in death, that are not accessible to you and that you cannot communicate with. Should you try? Well, the Prophet ﷺ kept trying. Was he effective? Was a whole lot of people, he wasn't effective. But that's what the Quran consistently teaches us. It's none of our business. If Allah would have willed, those who choose to live in darkness and choose to live in graves wouldn't. But should it have any effect on your morality and your understanding of what is right and wrong? No. Let me just check one thing. Yeah. Um, in Allah. Let me see if I can find it. There is a narrative about um, the companion Ibrahim al-Muhallab al-Sa'ih. That maybe I can find it. It's probably a good thing to share it with you. It's a riwayah from um, uh, an Ibrahim al-Muhallab al-Sa'ih that... Um, is uh, I think in Ismail Haqqi, but uh, I, I believe I read it in Ismail Haqqi. Oh, okay, I found it. Okay. Uh, th this is just from the 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 the, the literature that 
figures and like that our our tradition comments on and writes about and so on. So Ibrahim al-Muhalla bisa'ih, who is a companion of the Prophet والسلام, not in one of the very famous one, but anyway. قال بينما أنا أطوف وإذا بجارية متعلقة بأستار الكعبة وهي تقول بحبك لي ألا رددت على قلبي فقلت يا جارية, يا جارية من أين تعلمين أنه يحبك قالت بالعناية القديمة جيش في طلب الجيوش وأنفق الأموال حتى أخرجني من بلاد الشرك وأدخلني في التوحيد وعرفني نفسي بعد جهل إياها فهل هذا يا إبراهيم إلا لعناية أو محبة قلت وكيف حبك له قالت أعظم شيء وأجله قلت وكيف هو قالت هو أرق من الشراب وأحلى من الجلاب وإنما تتولى so, so what the story is that Ibrahim al-Muhallab is going and then he sees a woman who is next to the Kaaba and she is saying as supplicating um, so she's talking to God and she says I love you will you not answer the pangs of my heart so he goes up to this woman and he says I have a question how do you know that Allah loves you so she answers she says Allah has raised armies that came to my aid until I left the lands of shirk, the lands of non-Muslims, and came to the lands of Muslims, and I entered in Tawheed, I entered into Islam. And through Allah, I've come to know myself after I was ignorant of who I am. Don't you think after all that Allah, that he, that Allah has done for me, that Allah loves me? So she, imag she imagines the whole process of Muslim armies going to wherever land she was from and allowing her to have the freedom to travel from her lands to Mecca and then entering Islam as a personal messenger. She individualized the message. And then that, and this is, this is important for what's going to come, and through Allah I've come to know who I am as a human being. Remember, al-izza billah, that you, your honor, your sense of pride and glory is in Allah. So after that, you can say, you can, don't you see that in fact that Allah does love me? So Ibrahim al-Sa'ihsan then says, and how is it, how do you love God or how do you love him and she said it is the greatest thing in my life so he says and how have you found your lover 
She responds, Araqu min ash-sharabu ahla min al-jilab. More nourishing to me than any drink and more refreshing to my soul than ice or cold coldness that, that removes heat from you. So when commentators you find these types of narratives, a lot of them mentioned in the context of Antum al-Fuqara'ilallah and the, the whole the, from there on to night and day are not equals, the dead and alive are not equals in, in, in understanding what does actually being alive as opposed to dead or living in graves mean. Okay. The next critical message, if you go to Ayah 27, أَلَمْ تَرَى أَنَّ اللَّهَ أَنزَلَ مِنَ السَّمَاءِ مَاءً فَأَخْرَجْنَ بِهِ ثَمَرَاتٍ مُخْتَلِفًا أَلْوَانُهَا مِنَ الْجِبَالِ جُدُدٌ بِيضٌ وَحُمْرٌ مُخْتَلِفٌ أَلْوَانُهُ وَغَرَابِيبُ سُودٌ وَمِنَ النَّاسِ وَالْدَوَابِ وَالْأَنْعَامِ مُخْتَلِفٌ أَلْوَانُهُ كَذَلِكَ إِنَّمَا يَخْشَى اللَّهَ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ الْعُلَمَاءُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ عَزِيزٌ غَفُورٌ This passage 27-28 is probably one of the most famous Quranic verses or Quranic passages the diversity of colors in mountains, and in the mountains are streaks of white and red and of diverse hues and others pitch black. And of mankind, beasts and cattle, there are likewise those of diverse colors. Yet only those among his servants who know fear God, truly God is mighty and forgiving. Okay, the translation of the last part is not good. So Allah first tells you, reflect on the nature of diversity. What does Allah flag as a critical evidence of Allah's majesty? Diversity in colors. In what? is presented to us if you are superficial you will look at diversity of colors and as the so many there are very fascinating discussions about this so I say so you could look at the black mountains and say that they're evil 
or they're bad. Or look at the white mountains and say, I like white. Or look at the red mountains and say, I like red or I don't like red. But all of that would be false. Because true knowledge is to reflect on what these colors mean. And to know that all of these colors come from Allah so they're equal. You notice the obvious here. Islam long before anyone raised a finger against racism, the Quran anchored constitutionally the falsity of racism. Colors are ethnicities are all from Allah. You can't judge good and bad based on it's amazing that till this very day, the world suffers from racism. It is even more amazing that racism has infected some Muslims in the modern age. Now, notice right after this telling you about diversity in existence is the reference to al-ulama, who are the ulama? Scholars. And it tells you, إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهِ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ الْعُلَمَاءِ Which means that those who truly fear God, and يَخْشَ Allah here means those who truly know God, know God enough to have true reverence of God, are those who are truly ulama. Some read this, a minority read this, as that Allah has a special reverence for the ulama. Instead of the ulama have a special reverence for Allah. I think the correct reading is probably that the ulama have a special reverence for Allah. But note here, the ulama would understand the meaning of diversity. Not rule it as evil. Not be racist. Not be simple-minded. Not be superficial. But understand a diversity as a richness coming from the Creator. In this context, there is another quote that I want to share with you because Okay. 
the, the ones who said that Allah has a special reverence for the ulama is reported to be Ibn Siri and Umar bin Abdul Aziz and Abu Hanifa. Um, the ones who said that ulama have a special reverence for Allah is everyone else. Um, Yeah, there is a hadith from the Prophet ﷺ that says that the Prophet, when mentioned this verse in um, uh, mentioned this verse in a context, though, then the companions asked the Prophet. Who are the best companions? So the Prophet said, Man That who the best companions are those who, if you remember Allah, they support you. And if you forget Allah, they remind you. Who are the worst companions are those who, if you remember Allah, they don't help you. They don't encourage you to remember Allah more. And if you forget Allah, they don't remind you. So then they said, well, what is the worst situation for human beings? The Prophet said, if the scholars are corrupt, the people will become corrupt. This is, remember, there is a long hadith, I'll just paraphrase it instead of quoting it, that is very very widely reported everywhere. Um, that the inheritors of the prophets are the ulama. That prophecy ends, but the message of Allah moves to those who dedicate themselves to the study of the message. But the true ulama, the true ulama, Surah Fatir, in many ways defines for you the true alim. A true alim is a faqir lillah, is someone who is thoroughly lives aware of their dependence on Allah. A true alim is utters kind words and service. A true alim doesn't have harsh words, doesn't like to hurt people with unkind words. And a true alim doesn't sit and refuse to help people. A true alim exists for serving people. A true alim 
understands that diversity is Allah's creation and that even kufr is part of Allah's will and that you're not you don't control the people who live in graves or the people who are dead and those who turn away and don't want to hear the true alim understands that and has perseverance and patience and a true alim understands the significance of diverse colors in existence and because of that a true alim has a true khishyatillah so why is surat fatir when the Prophet والسلام, is still alive early on in the Meccan period and it's prepping Muslims for the role of an ulama. Is this a human revelation? This is a divine revelation. This is a God knowing what's coming. And setting out an entire constitution for discerning good from bad for an entire philosophy of life okay now the next in critical juncture in the Surah Fatif is around verse 32. ثُمَّ سَأَوْرَثْنَا الْكِتَابِ الَّذِينَ اصْطَفَيْنَا مِنْ عِبَادِنَا فَمِنْهُمْ ظَالِمٌ لِنَفْسِهِ وَمِنْهُمْ مُقْتَصِدٌ وَمِنْهُمْ سَابِقٌ بِالْخَيْرَاتِ بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ ذَلِكَ هُوَ الْفَضْلُ الْكَبِيرِ so verse 32 comes and says okay so understood those who the first at verse 29 those who recite the book and and hold steadfast to prayer and spend generously of what Allah has given them notice it Allah always couples prayer with deeds so those this is 29 right those who recite the book who pray who spend from what Allah has given those Allah will reward but then it takes you to an understanding of the very legacy of revelation and tells you after having told you the the, the value of scholars what we have given you Muhammad the revelation what we have given you affirms the revelation of those before okay understood it's the same message over and over it's the same God with the same message 
But understand Muhammad and of course the followers of Muhammad that there are those who inherit the book and those who inherit the book then it comes and surprises the heck of us because those who inherit the book okay so they're in great shape right they inherited the book no those who inherit the book are three types some of them are unjust to themselves and some of them are moderates wow so those that inherited the book some of them are evil are bad they're actually unjust towards themselves and some of them muqtasid muqtasid means they do good things and bad things but they're moderate they try they mess up sometime and get it right sometime and some of them some of them no no here meaning they excel in good deeds when Allah came to indicate the truly pious he didn't say that they believe the best or they have the best iman or they pray the most no their faith the fact that they inherited the book makes them excel in good deeds so three types it is not as if but in fact Allah is warning us although speaking to the Prophet that we will inherit the book and some of us will inherit the book and be like Muslims who are unjust to themselves because every injustice as so many of the scholars say actually like noted a quote but if I don't find it in two seconds I'm not going to read it Um, you know who to blame <laughs> um, okay, I'll paraphrase the quote so you don't blame them as much um, that the zulm is of three types zulm is of three types zulm that injustice directed against God Zulmul Ghayr, injustice directed against others, and Zulmul Nafs, injustice directed against the self. Any form of Zulm that is Zulmul Lah and Zulmul Ghayr, if you are unjust towards God and unjust towards others, you are also unjust against the self. But if you are unjust against the self, you are not necessarily unjust unjust towards Allah and unjust against others. So anytime you are unjust against Allah, so for instance, you don't pray. You're unjust against Allah, but you're also against, unjust against yourself. If anytime you are unjust against others, you are also unjust against Allah and also unjust against the self. 
But if you are unjust against yourself, you are not necessarily the other two. For zalimun linafsi includes those people whose injustice is against Allah and includes those people whose injustice are against others and also unjust against the self. Although they inherited the book, they failed the book. And then there are the muqtasids, the strugglers, and then there are the sabiqun bil khairat, those who in fact do justice to the inheritance that they received. It is remarkable that this surah is talking to Muslims as the Prophet is with them. Because it is telling Muslims the challenges that will come for centuries. So, جنات عدن يدخلونها يرحلون فيها من أساور من ذهب ولؤلؤ ولباسهم من فيها حرير. This is ayah thirty-three where they enter heaven, and um, you know, we've talked a lot about how the the ornaments of heaven are interpreted by different interpreters. So we don't need to go through that again, but. You find very interesting interpretations of asawir mundhaham walu'lu' walibasum fiya harir. So harir, for instance, which is means silk, but so many the 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 um, those who the non-literalist um, took lu'lu' for instance perils to be symbolic for forms of enlightenment and harir for the type of knowledge that brings repose and comfort. So they didn't believe that it's actual the world, actual silk. But anyway. But what's important here is 34. If I was a calligrapher, I would have loved to write this. What is the critical thing here? I'm interested to see how Sadi Quran translated it. Um, and pray to God who dispelled grief from us. Uh. Okay, Al Hazan first. Um, Hazan comes from a very interesting origin. Um, Hazan is is a, a, a harsh, arid land that nothing grows in it. Nothing can, can grow in this land because it, basically no soil whatsoever. Dead land. From that was extracted the word for sadness and grief. When you are in a state of sadness, you feel arid. 
you are you feel incapable of producing beauty. The nature of sadness in you is that heaviness where you feel nothing grows. So if I come to you and I tell you some very interesting ideas about the Quran, you're not in the mood to listen. That's the nature of sadness. You're arid. If I come and say, oh, I have a very beautiful piece of music that I want to play for you, you're not in the mood to listen. You're arid. You're hazan. And so, at that point, we return to the theme of alhamd. And human, those who are on the right path will turn to Allah and say, Alhamdulillah, الذي أذهب عنا الحزن. What is it that they're thanking Allah for? Well, at the most basic level, you'd say, well, they're thanking Allah for the removal of sadness. But what sadness? And here is where you get all the very interesting, fascinating commentators. Okay, so you're holding on to your hats? Here it goes. That some said, well, in the hereafter, as you are waiting to be judged, you are going to be experiencing anxiety. Even if you received your book in the right hand, you're still worried. And you're still waiting for it to be processed. So, you are finally grateful for the pre-accountability period to be over. That's number one. Number two said, no, that's not what it's talking about. That's speculative. But rather, if you look at Surah Fatr, you see that it's telling you that if you walk this path, the path of the Lord, you will encounter those who live in graves. You will encounter those who are effectively dead. You will encounter those who are blind and deaf. You will encounter all types of things that will be not just aggravating, but often will make you an outlier. That if you insist on being on the righteous path, expect your share of burdens. And hazan here doesn't necessarily mean sadness, but burdens. And finally, in the hereafter, as you remember all of that, and you say, Alhamdulillah, all of it was worth it. Several commentators noted something very worthwhile, that while grief for those who walk the path on this earth is often individual and lonely, but in the hereafter, you realize something, that you weren't alone all along. That in fact, as much as you felt 
like an outlier and alone. There were so there were many people like you around the world. So collectively, you are grateful for the removal of that legacy of struggle that you lived through. Third school, or the third perspective, said the hazard that you are thanking Allah for removing is literally the arid aridness of lack of understanding. The veils are removed and the illuminations that have of things that puzzled you throughout your life come to you flooding. And that state of illumination and knowledge is what you are thanking Allah for. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Okay. So after the expression of gratitude, Alhamdulillah, Ladi Azhabana al Hazan. Alhamdulillah, who has removed Hazan from us, and we talked about what various schools said about the expression Hazan. Surat Fatir segues into a description of the consequences in the hereafter. The, the thing to note is what becomes a common theme in the Quran is that those who are punished will recollect their life or remember their life and say or scream out give us a chance and we will do better and the Quranic comment on this um, <clears throat> that even if Allah would give them a chance again they would simply repeat their ill conduct this uh, I mean we will comment on it inshallah in another context uh, so I'm gonna reserve it um, for that but the most significant thing to just note for now is that the problem is often not or that the problem for so many of those who go astray is lack of self-control is that 
when the 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 idea that they would simply repeat the their ill conduct is that when they are presented with the same temptations if they would have been given a chance again they would still weaken so it is not a matter of the strength of the, the lack of conviction on their part but they fundamentally as a people that they have a problem with their own ego and the desire to satisfy the impulses of the ego. And then from there, after the, the short reference to the consequences in hellfire and heaven, Allah calls upon us to reflect upon if you will, existential realities. So it starts with in, 20, in 39. That you have been, and, and this is now in the Quran firmly anchors the idea that you have been created as khulafa fil ard, as in, you inherit the, the earth. Note that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates Adam, this is not in Surah Fatir, um, but that when Allah creates Adam and Allah tells the, the, the Malaika, I have created a Khalifa in the Ard. And their comment is, I, have, you've created someone who's going to yusfuq al-dama'ah that you are going to create that who is going to spill blood and cause corruption on earth and we praise you and Allah says I know what you don't know and this is then the story goes on that then Allah teaches Adam the names that in the Islamic outlook and we'll come to this later inshallah but that Adam is created from the beginning to inherit the land which is very different from the Christian outlook of the story of the fall and the story of the original sin. It, it, it is not an exaggeration to say that in Islam there is no original sin. And inshallah we'll talk about the various discussions about whether there is a fall or not. But that the Quran explicitly, Allah from the beginning, the purpose of human beings is to step in a very special role of being agents for the divine. But this agency means like all agencies, like all agents, all agents have the freedom to violate their fiduciary duties and to basically violate the rules of their agency. And so 
Allah simply reminds us that if you violate your fiduciary duties vis-a-vis -vis Allah, you are the losers. And that that it only makes them more distant and alien from Allah. That's, I think, a, a more accurate translation than someone says uh, 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 it only makes them more disliked by Allah. It, that's for for many different reasons. Illa um, It's simply this agency carries with it a great potential and also the possibility of great loss. Now, قُلْ أَرَأَيْتُمْ شُرَكَاءُكُمُ الَّذِينَ تَدْغُونَ مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ أَرْيُونِي مَاذَا خَلَقُوا مِنَ الْأَرْضِ أَمْ لَهُمْ شِرْكٌ فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ أَمْ أَتَيْنَاهُمْ كِتَابًا فَهُمْ عَلَى بَيِّنَةٍ مِنْهِ بل إن يعد الظالمون بعضهم بعضا إلا غرورا Of course a lot of commentators for this the Ayah 40 that will often say that the idols create nothing but I think قل أرأيتم شركاءكم الذي تدعون من دون الله Look, consider your partners that you turn to other Allah. What have they created of this existence? That this existence belongs to Allah. You use the, the instrumentalities that Allah has set in place. You might think that you own it, but in fact, you are simply you are utilizing the properties that Allah has created in creation. Shuraka'ukum is anything that you turn to as for authoritative reference and not necessarily just idols. which could be anything that distracts you from an awareness to who this world actually belongs to and your role as agents and trustees in this world entrusted with possession of this world And the reminder that, of course, is in, in 41, that the entire existence on this earth is intricately balanced 
and intricately calibrated and that it would be very easy for Allah to wrap it all up. Now, of course, we understand this much better than our predecessors. Um, that that when Allah is in Allah is called Samawati wal Ard and Tazula wal Inzalata in Amsakuma min Ahadin min Badi. That we, we understand the fragility of how carefully calibrated things are for life on earth to exist the way it, it exists. Now, look at 43. أَوَلَمْ يَسِيرُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ فَانْظُرُوا كَيْفَ كَانَ عَاقِبَةُ الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ وَكَانُوا أَشَدَّ مِنْهُمْ قُوَّةٌ وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيَعْجِزُهُمْ مِنْ شَيْءٍ فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَلَا فِي الْأَرْضِ إِنَّهُ كَانَ عَلِيمًا قَدِيرًا 43 and 44 After Allah reminded you that possession of this world with its intricate balance and life belongs to Allah but Allah's claim of ownership over history which is a consistent Quranic theme and a very important one and the repeated narrative in history a civilization rises becomes in, infected with istikbar with arrogance and Istikbar is literally to to be um, mighty and and arrogant to believe that now you own your own destiny. But this they say it takes great amount of wisdom. And according for the, to the Sufis, a great amount of ilm to actually understand that. That sooner or later, all evil doing returns upon the evil doer. To understand the movement of the nature of goodness in the long term and the nature of evil on earth and to understand that whatever evil human beings put forward it will return upon them and destroy them it is said that it takes a great deal of wisdom to understand that you read a tremendous amount of writing about how the superficial or the not very knowledgeable or the not very wise they imagine that it is in fact evil that is always victorious on earth 
and that people can escape the consequences of their evil doing. But that is not so. And there are long discourses on why it is not so. But the reminder in Surah Fatir to now coming back after sort of setting these transcendent constitutional principles, coming back to the Prophet and his context, and saying, remember, tell the Meccans that those who preceded them were far more, were far stronger than they are. And yet that availed them nothing. And a reminder that will challenge intolerance throughout Islamic history. And this deserves reflection. وَلَوْ يُؤَاخِذُ اللَّهُ النَّاسَ بِمَا كَسَبُوا مَا تَرَكَ عَلَى ظَهْرِهَا مِنْ دَابَّةٍ وَلَكِنْ يُؤَخِّرُهُمْ إِلَىٰ أَجَلٍ مُسَمَّةٍ فَإِذَا جَاءَ أَجَلُهُمْ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ بِعِبَادِهِ بَصِيرًا if Allah would truly allow human beings to suffer the consequences of their evil deeds, life on this earth would not remain. So that in fact, not only is Allah present, but Allah intervenes often to save life on this earth, to prevent extinction of life on this earth. And then the reminder that there is Ajal Musamma, there is a moment of accountability, but look at how this surah ends. فَإِنْ جَاءَ أَجَلُهُمْ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ it doesn't tell you when the end comes so there will be utter destruction but simply Allah intervenes to save people from the follies of their deeds and to preserve life on this earth and when the time comes you have nothing you have no choice but to humbly accept that Allah was the observer and the seer of all. It is as if you must accept that you're going to surrender that why did Allah intervene to preserve life on earth? Why did Allah keep the Romans, the Romans, for as long as Allah did? Why did Allah keep the British in control of the world as long as Allah did? Why did Allah have the Ottoman Empire crumble when it crumbled? Why did Allah allow the Mongols to rise when they did? It simply tells you that you're going to have to accept that Allah was, is the knower of all, that it, none of it was an accident. 
So, you take Surat Fatir, and if you want to summarize Surat Fatir's intervention with Muslims before Surat Maryam, which we'll now talk about, the, 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 we'll, we'll start filling in morality narratives of a very different type. Morality narratives about previous prophets and previous people. And after having the Quran having already Surah Yasin and Surah Al-Furqan, Surah Fatir comes and anchors you in as a Muslim, you are going to have to commit to absolutes. Absolutes of what is right and what is wrong. And to absolutes of what is good and what is bad. But understand that the life is full of shades and gradations. And the true role of scholars, of ulama, is to master these gradations and to guide their people, but within fundamental principles, principles of antum al-fuqara ilallah, you are entirely dependent on Allah, so you're not entirely dependent on tyrants, you're not entirely dependent on the wealthy. You're not entirely dependent on, you know, the a, a, a king such and such who knows everything and basically replaces God. But al-fuqara ilallah, a rejection of the intoxications of power and kind words and good deeds. It's like so many Sufis said, there is a passage um, I, w I don't remember where I read it, but a passage that's very beautiful comment about Fuqaha and it, it was definitely one of the Sufi tafsirs and it basically says that that there are you look at Fuqaha and there are some fuqaha that are true ulama, and some fuqaha that are not ulama at all. Some fuqaha think they have ilm, they think they have knowledge, but they guide not their people as to the gradations of every anything, but simply are imitators, telling people what is right and wrong depending on what they inherited from their mazhab. But they, they actually don't provide any form of leadership. And some fuqaha who is, who the way they conduct their affairs shows that they do not really believe in al-fakhr ilallah. That they live eating at the tables of rich people, making their living from kissing up to powerful people, that that's inconsistent with the fuqara in Allah. And 
some fuqaha who utter nothing but unkind words and have nothing but harsh treatment for those who are below them. And it was just, um, I couldn't find it when last night when I was trying to look for it. But basically that Surah Furqan gives you a, a, a litmus test that these are not ulama. These are not the ulama that Allah is talking about. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Now that we finished Surah Furqan, I, I just want to... Huh? Sorry, sorry. We did finish Surah Furqan, but not, not tonight. Um, I want to underscore because it, um, I, uh, when I uh, felt quite ill yesterday, it, these moments of illness just are, are serve as really powerful reminders to how things can change in oh, just in a, in a matter of minutes or, or, or you know one hour you're on your feet another the next you you, you can't stand on your feet um, if you see that this tafsir is needed for the Muslim ummah if Allah allows you to see that this tafsir is fills a need for the Muslim Ummah, please support it and please help us get it out. Um, because I can't, I don't know what will happen afterwards. You know, when 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 it's a, when a scholar is alive, they can drive things, but once they're gone egos interfere and when egos interfere then people start bickering and lose momentum and lose energy and uh, nothing goes anywhere so help us may Allah help you if you believe in this only Allah knows for a for a law professor to take on something like this, the, the type of, the level of sacrifice this requires. But alhamdulillah, I, I, I wouldn't do it any other way. So, khalas, alhamdulillah.